you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 15 today. And if you're new with us, just know that we've been walking through this wonderful book. It's a letter written from Paul to, guess who? The Romans. And it's been a great book. This is actually our, our 51st sermon in the book of Romans. Number 51. 5-1. Five, and if you turn that around, that's 1-5. How about that? Chapter 15. That just came to me. Just like that. Chapter 15 is where we're at for our 51st sermon. We're looking at just the first six verses. If you would, please stand with me after you get it. As you got it, say amen. And let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That line is so important, I've got to read it again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, whoever welcomes one another as Christ has welcomed you, therefore, I'm sorry, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses on the title, Bearing with the Failings of the Weak. Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father, we ask that you would move among us and in us today as we read your word and study it. Help me to communicate your truths, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that you would shape us and mold us and fashion us according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. During the plague of Alexandria in the 1300s, everyone else fled the city but the Christians. The Christians remained in the city and they performed simple deeds. They would wash the sick with water, they would give food to the sick, and they would console the dying. Instead of running from the weak, the Christians were known to run to the weak. The historian Eusebius said this of that day. He says, all day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Other Christians gathered together from all parts of the city 
a multitude of those withered from famine and, distri and distributed bread to all of them. Why would Christians run to the weak instead of running from the weak? These Christians knew love. They knew the love of Christ for them. For when we are weak, He is strong. Christ came to us in our weakness. He came to us in our suffering. God uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong. And this morning we come to this passage, verse 1, in which we discover that we are to bear with the failings of here, not the physically weak, but the spiritually weak. Not to run from them, but to run to them. Verse 1, if you see it again, it says, we who are strong have an obligation. I know you don't like obligations. As soon as you hear that word obligation, something in us bristles. But Paul says that we have an obligation. An obligation for what? To bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul identifies here with the strong. He says, we who are strong, meaning he understands himself to be part of whoever it is that is strong. Now, we've been studying this for the last few weeks, but just in case this is your first time here studying this passage with us, a little context is helpful. The Jewish Christians, about five years prior, were kicked out of Rome. And they continued to develop their understanding of justification by faith through Jesus Christ as Christians who were culturally and ethnically Jewish. However, the Gentile Christians who formed the churches in Rome, they were freed from all of the ceremonial traditions of Judaism. For them, it was no problem to not observe Sabbath days and dietary restrictions and all of these things that were associated with Old Testament worship of God. Because they rightly understood, and Paul calls them the strong for this reason and identifies with them, he, they rightly understand that the law, all of the ceremonies and all of the sacrifices were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so now in Christ, we have liberty. We have freedom in Christ. And so they were freely worshiping God in their liberties. And so these churches formed. Now, five years later, in uh, AD 52, Nero brought the Jews back into Rome and most scholars and historians believe that that's when the culture, culture clash happened. As Jewish Christians were trying to assimilate back into Gentile churches. And the Jewish Christians were saying, hey, you're not uh, practicing Sabbath on Saturdays. You're going bowling on Saturdays or working on Saturdays. You're bringing bacon to the, to the potluck. You're not following. And so they would begin to judge the strong. And the, the strong would despise the weak. Like life was so much easier when it was just the strong in the room. But it's harder now that the weak are in the room. It's harder, harder now that those who are clinging to these old unnecessary traditions are with us. And so that's what Paul's been dealing with in chapter 14 as he goes into chapter 15. 
ethnicity and culture must not divide the church of God. That's Paul's starting point. Instead of separating into a Jewish church here and a Gentile church over there, Paul is arguing for the necessity to find unity among the people of God. Now, definitions are important, so let's define strong and weak. Who are the strong? The strong are those who rightly understand all the implications of the gospel. The weak are those who believe the gospel. They're Christians. They're trusting in Christ alone. Yet the weak are those who in some fashion or another, whether it's ancient context or contemporary context, the weak are those who misunderstand or do not understand the implications of the gospel. They don't understand all of the applications of being a gospel-transformed citizen of the kingdom of God. Paul theologically sides with the strong. We who are strong. But what does he say? There's a big but here. He's not just saying, hey, you guys are right, I'm right. Let's separate from the weak. He sides with the strong, yet... He says, we who are strong, we have an obligation. Those who understand all the implications of the gospel, you, he says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. To bear with their failings. This tells us first that the weak are, in fact, failing. It means that they're actually, they are wrong. Those who add or subtract Rules that are extra-biblical and following God are failing to rightly follow God. Insignificant traditions made significant. Those who take inconsequential things and restrictions and make them consequential to following Christ. Those who say that non-essentials are essential. He says they're failing. They're, they're not getting it. They're, 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 they're missing it. And today, there are those who we might say are theologically and practically weak. Those who are Christians, they believe in Jesus Christ, yet they are misguided. And sometimes, we can be so misguided, we kind of get into these ruts. And it's really hard for us to change our mind when we're in these ruts. It could be that they're misguided, perhaps, with traditions. They grew up in a, an environment with various traditions, and they attach these traditions to what it means to follow God, and it's very difficult for them to separate those two things. Or perhaps they grew up in the streets, and the ways that they deal with conflict are, need to be dipped in the gospel, and they haven't made all the implications and applications of the gospel as it relates to some aspects of their life. Or perhaps they still operate according to the ways of the world. And in their minds, as they're operating according to the ways of the world, they're following God and doing their best, yet they are misguided and they're wrong. 
acting according to their understanding, yet their understanding is inaccurate. So the first thing he's saying here is that the weak are, in fact, failing. There is a failure here. But secondly, what he's saying is, is that the strong have an obligation. And that obligation is to bear with the failings of the weak. Meaning, if nature takes its course, the strong will likely separate themselves from the weak. Meaning, who doesn't want a strong church? Who doesn't want people to say, look at your church and say, man, everybody in your church is strong. Every member of your church is strong. Verse 1 and 2 continues, however, because there's, if we go back to chapter 14, got to tie this in, the weak are in danger. So, yes, we want a strong church, but we have to understand the weak are in danger of giving up and throwing in the towel. And so what he says as he continues in verse 1 and 2 is he says that the strong are to act in ways that, that don't just simply please themselves. Verse 2 reemphasizes this. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That is edification, meaning we are to use our freedoms, we are to use our quote-unquote strength in our understanding of the implications of the gospel, we are to use that for the edification of the weak, not for the destruction of the weak. That's what he's saying. Are you with me? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love thy, say it, neighbor. This is the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Paul is talking about what it means to love our neighbor. And from chapter 12 on through chapter 15, he's talking about this, this application of the gospel as it relates to us. As it relates to people just like us. And what he says is that we must love one another. And this very specific kind of application is as it relates to the weak. How we love those who are weak among us. Now, he qualifies this sort of pleasing of man. Because, you know, Paul elsewhere talks about how we should not be a people pleaser, a man pleaser, but rather we should be one that pleases God. He qualifies it. He says, for his good, to build him up. So we are to please others, not in just such a way as, uh, you know, to, to kind of make them like us or to get their favor, but we're to, what he's saying is, is we are to act in such a way that is pleasing to their edification. For their good, not merely for my own good and for my own ease. Why do the strong divide from the weak? Well, it's because he tells us implicitly, he, he tells us, he says, it's because there's a bearing that has to happen. You know that word bearing? Like, I, you know, if, if I were to say, hey, you know, I'm Father's Day, I've got four kids, I bear with them. That wouldn't sound like, a, you know, a whole lot of, you know, there's a, there's a sense of suffering. That's not the case. I love my children. I do bear with them sometimes. But bear with the weak, you know. Um, but bearing means that there's a sense of suffering there, right? 
The very fact he uses the word bearing means that it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Like uh, Charvel and I, we were just in the airport coming back from New Orleans, and we had our, our whole One Hope booth and our luggage going through the airport, and I, I literally felt, thought my right shoulder was going to just fall off. I was like, this is going to be really embarrassing when I have to pick my arm up, you know? We're bearing with our luggage. This is the image that I get in my mind. Bearing is suffering. What he's saying is this, is unity in the church. If we're going to stay unified as a congregation, there is going to be an element of suffering in achieving unity. And if we don't, if we just take the easy road and not bear with one another, then, then that results in disharmony and that results in disunion. A divided church is a weaker church. I want you to wrap your mind around this. Having weak people in your church is not what makes a weak church. Strong folks dividing themselves from the weak and pushing the weak out of the church is what makes a weak church. We are to display the beauty of the gospel. And without unity, our gospel proclamation suffers. And not only that, but the weak will suffer. The weak will easily become discouraged. The weak will easily throw in the towel. But, let's turn this around. If we can figure this out, we will display something that the world has never seen. A kind of community where people come from very different backgrounds, from very, very different uh, cultures and ethnicities, different levels of spiritual maturity, all with one voice praising God together. Where do you see that in society? In the church of God. That's where, right here. Here's my big kind of statement for this sermon. If you want to wrap your mind around this or write it down, since God is glorified in our unity, let's let the strong bear with the failings of the weak. Since God is glorified in our unity, let the strong bear with the failings of the weak. So how do we do this? Because it, it does require suffering. How do we do this? Let me talk to you about it. Three things from this text. Number one, Look at Christ's own sacrifice for unity. Look at Christ's sacrifice for unity. Look at verse 3. He says, for, everybody say for. For is a grounding word. What he's saying is, is here's the big idea. Strong bear with the, the failings of the weak. Here's the reason. Here's the basis for Christ. He starts with Jesus. This is why. Christ. Think about Christ. What does 1 Peter 2.21 say? To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. 
his suffering is for us and for our redemption, and his suffering is also an example. He says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ lived a life of righteousness, not for self-interest, but for the interest of others. Christ walked up the hill of Calvary, not to please himself, but to please you. Christ died on the cross, and on that old rugged cross, he bore our shame, not to please himself, but to please you. You see, he lived his whole earthly ministry to serve the weak. And so here he, he, he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, the psalmist says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's putting these words, rightly so, into the mouth of Jesus, as if Jesus himself prayed this prayer, and he did, without a doubt. You would be God and me would be Jesus, so this would mean the reproaches of those who reproached God fell on Jesus. Jesus was the holy, eternal Son of God who every bit of his life was, was pleasing to the Father. We are those who reproached God. And what he's saying here is that the Son of God became the Lamb of God. And the reproaches, the judgments of God, for me, fell onto Christ. This is what's called the gospel message. This is how any of us are saved. If you're not a Christian, this is how you can today be saved and know that you are right with God. Not because you are blameless, but because the blameless one died for blame, uh, uh, people with blame such as you and me. When Jesus died on the cross, he, he bore the full weight of our punishment in his own body. He took the wrath of God that I deserved in his own body. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ bore our reproach on our behalf. And all who turn from their sins and look to the cross and see Christ, our sacrifice, the Lamb of God, are saved. Forgiven now. Forgiven now of all of your sins and one day will be freed from even the presence of sin. And on that day, every tribe and every nation will be present. On that day, those who were weak on earth and those who were, were strong on earth will be present. Not two peoples, not three peoples, but one people of God that he saves us to. Now, in the same way that Christ suffered for unity's sake, so that we might be one, in the same way that he suffered, so must a man was visiting a little town, and he 
uh, had a tour guide with him, and the man saw a, uh, a, another man walking with a big flock, a big herd of sheep. And the man said, oh, wow, look, it's a shepherd. And the tour guide laughed, and he said, that's not a shepherd. That's the butcher. You see, shepherds and butchers look alike. You just might get the two confused. And it's possible that you might have some strong Christians who look like shepherds and who act like shepherds and talk like shepherds, but in all reality, they're not willing to sacrifice for the sake of God's people, and therefore they are actually a butcher. If anybody had the right to be a butcher, it was Jesus Christ himself. Yet Christ is the one who is called the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And he leads me to, to places where I can feast and have life. Not because I deserve it. Not because I'm strong in and of myself. But, but because he is a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. And then as we see the church founded in Matthew 16, and then as we see how the church relates to those who are struggling in Matthew 18, what we discover there is a little parable about how the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one who is struggling. That's what this looks like. It is love for the weak. It's love for the struggling. It's love for the erring. It is not to merely butcher them. Religious hypocrites who want purity will act more like butchers than shepherds. But rather, the gospel-shaped man and woman bears with the failings of the weak. Amen? Greater love has no, no man than this, than a man who lays down his life. For his friend. Do you bear with the failings of the weak? These are people who believe the gospel, but they're missing some gospel implications in some fashion. Do we bear with the failings of the weak? For example, let me just give you some, some practical applications here. There, there could be a, a in, a, in a church, there could be somebody who attends church every other week. And every time they show up, they're late. And you think to yourself, wait a second, you should be there every Sunday. And you should be there for the call to worship. And you could act like a butcher toward them and harm them when you see them. Yes, they should be there every week. Do not forsake the assembly, right? Amen? But they're going to church 100% more than they've ever gone to church in their life. And for them, 50% of the time is pretty good. Now, it doesn't mean that that's where we stop in our discipleship with somebody, but it's an issue of their, uh, it's, it's an issue of their, their habits more than their heart. Does that make sense? Their heart is right, seeking to honor God and love God. And we can love them into a deeper understanding of all the implications of the gospel, amen? But we bear with the failings of the weak. Or another example, I mean, we've, we've currently moved about a mile from our meeting space, and there's been some who have struggled to get over here. Some, some walk, and they don't want to walk an extra mile, and they told me that. And we could say, look, you know, we could, here's what the butcher would do. The butcher would say, all right, let me tell you about the persecuted church. 
let me tell you the sacrifices that they make, right? Well, we can talk, about, and there's, there's truth to that, right? But we are to bear with the failings of the weak and not load on them shame, but love. Or perhaps, let me give you some other analogies. Uh, you, you got some, one person, one foot in his old ways, one foot in the gospel. Disciple them, encourage them, strengthen them, but bear with their failings. Sanctification is a long process. There are those who make politics a thing of purity. You've got to vote for the right party and the right candidate. You've got to bear with the failings of the weak. There are those who draw lines on non-essentials, those who demand dress codes in certain ways, those who demand Sabbath days or ban holidays. In all of these ways and more, we could probably sit around and come up with a hundred other examples. We are to bear with the failings of the weak. Step one, how do we do that? Look at the sacrifice of Christ. Are you with me? Step two, look at Christ's endurance in our unity. So we look at his suffering, or his sacrifice rather, and as we look at his sacrifice, I want you also to see his endurance in that sacrifice. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes next. Look at verse 4. He says, for whatever was written in former days, now he's referring, remember here, to Christ. The reproaches of those who reproached you were put on me. He wants us to see Jesus, and what he's now saying is, is here's the reason I want you to see Jesus, because the things that are written in former days are written for our instruction. That through endurance, somebody say endurance. And that through encouragement, somebody say encouragement. Through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let's take this verse from back to front. If we're going to have unity, that means we've got to bear with one another. And if we're going to bear with one another, we've got to have hope. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and say, if I'm going to bear with you, I'm going to need a lot of hope. That's what he's saying. Paul wants us to have an eschatological vision fueling our ecclesiological practice. Those are big words. What I mean by that is this. Our hope of heaven ought to shape our church on earth. Heaven is going to be a place where you will look at the weak with the purest and deepest kind of love that you can imagine. You will love them with an eternal love forever. And it's a place where the weak will have appreciation and admiration for the strong, those that were strong on earth, forever. And what he's saying is, is that this hope comes from the scriptures. Our encouragement comes as we read the word and as we discover the saints who suffered in various ways for the unity of the church with their hope, not in this world, but in things to come. For unity is intertwined with suffering. 
And suffering is intertwined with endurance. And endurance is intertwined with building character. And character produces hope. That was Romans chapter 5. Meaning our endurance is inseparable from our hope. If we are going to be a unified church and bear with one another and have, have hope, we must have endurance. Where do we get the endurance from? Well, why was it that Charvel and I walking through the airport with the luggage bearing this load, why did we keep going? Why not just drop it and say we're done? Here's why. It's because we could see home. We were almost there. We knew what our destination was. And we were willing to bear this load because of our hope, not in the moment, but because of our hope in the destination. Is anybody with me? Our endurance is inseparable from our hope. People are hard to deal with. You're hard to deal with. I'm hard to deal with. No, I'm just playing. I'm not hard. I'm really easy to deal with. No, we are all hard. Here's the thing about weak and strong. Even though Paul's talking about these two categories, there's no indication that we're forever in either one of these categories. It could be that you're strong in some ways and weak in other ways. It could be that one day you are the weak and the next day you are the strong. Broadly, the scriptures call us to bear with one another. People are hard to deal with. But we endure. And we bear with each other because we know we are heading home. Our endurance is inseparable from our hope. Think of Christ as an example. The cross was pure agony. Yet Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he did what? He endured. His endurance came from what? The joy set before him. The hope of redemption. He didn't enjoy the cross. He didn't appreciate the cross. He wasn't happy going through the sufferings of agony, the agony on Calvary. But he endured it because of the joy that was set before him because of the hope that was set before him. It's because our endurance is inseparable from our hope. So we look to Christ in his endurance, in his bearing with us, and we endure with one another. Third, and I'm done. Look at Christ's accomplishment of our unity. So we look at his suffering, we look at his endurance, and we look at his accomplishment of our unity. For this, I just need to briefly kind of glance forward, verse 8 through verse uh, 13, the next passage there in verse 8, we're told that Christ died for Gentiles. So that, verse 10, Gentiles would rejoice with the Jews. So that, verse 12, the promises through Isaiah might be fulfilled, meaning... Our unity of ethnicity and culture and weak and strong and different kinds of people from different backgrounds and different levels of spiritual maturity. Our unity is something that Christ actually did. It's something that is already 
done. Meaning we don't create unity. We discover unity. We realize we already have unity. That's where he goes next. And so the reason we want to experience it is because we have it. The reason we want to experience, experience it is because Christ has already brought it for us. Christ created un unity. There is one, one death for one church, for one body. There is one spirit filling this body. Society can start all kinds of diversity programs. But you, you, you can't improve upon what God has made. Society can strive for it. But you can't improve upon what God has made. Let me give you an example of this. What is the best drink to quench your thirst? There's a website I looked at, 21 Best Hydration Drinks. All very expensive, by the way. Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Powder. Roar Organic Vitamin Enhanced Beverages. Americans spend billions and billions of dollars every year on drinks to quench their thirst. Yet, I read a study by the Harvard School of Public Health which said that there, while there are many options for what to drink, without a doubt, water is the best choice. This takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, when God created water. And it just so happens that this many years later, with all of our technology, that, that water is still the best. You can't, here's my point, you can't improve upon what God has made. Are you with me? What I'm saying is, is we could spend billions of dollars in all kinds of diversity programs to bring kinds of people, all kinds of people together from different backgrounds and have little conversations and powwows and sit in circles and talk about our backgrounds and our differences, but you just can't improve on what God has made. And what God has made is a new humanity which reflects to the broader society, it reflects to the rest of humanity a unified humanity. It displays to the world that Jesus Christ is, in fact, sent from God. That's what our love does for one another. That's what our love from the weak to the strong, from the strong to the weak does, is it displays what God has already done. So, in verses 5 and 6, then, Paul leaves us with a prayer. One commentator says, that Paul prays out loud so that those that need to hear it can hear it. And I like that. He prays out loud for the church, and what he says is this. Look at verse 5. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says here that God is the God of endurance. Think about that. Nobody endures like God endures. He's the God of endurance. Romans chapter 1, God endures 
with those who reject him. Romans chapter 9, God endures with vessels of wrath so the vessels of glory might understand his grace. Christ endured mocking and persecution. Christ endured the suffering of the cross. God is the God of endurance. And God, he says, is the God of encouragement. He's not the God of discouragement. A little thought experiment here. Are you perfect? Does God encourage you? Think about that. Just think about those two questions and the answers to those questions. I am not imperfect. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm very, very imperfect. I am not perfect. Yet God still encourages me. You see, I think we think that people deserve encouragement only when they're doing well. But God tells us to bear with the failings of the weak and then he defines himself as the God of encouragement. So how do we respond toward those who are weak? We endure with them, but not only endure, we encourage them. That's our response. Because God is the God of endurance and God is the God of encouragement. So therefore, he goes on in verse 5, he's the God who grants unity. He, says, he uses the word grant. May he grant you to live in such harmony with each other. It comes from God, not from us. So what's our experience of it? I love the word harmony here. Here's our experience of it. It's not division, but it's harmony. It's not out of tune with each other, but we're talking about harmonies. We are to live in harmony. I think he's using a music analogy here, verse 5. We're to live in harmony with each other so that we declare God's glory with one voice. In harmony. Verse 6. I asked Alton earlier this week, I was like, how do you teach people how to, live, how to sing harmonies? And his first response was this. In order to sing in harmony, you must listen to the lead. If you don't follow where the lead goes, the harmony is broken and you get noise and confusion, he said. Here's my point. If we are going to harmonize together, church, in our differences, as we bear with the failings of the weak, and weak as, as you grow and learn and, 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 and try to understand the strong, and however we fall into these categories, as we bear with one another, and as we understand that our differences are not divisions, but rather they're harmonies, we have to know the melody. We have to know the lead voice. Now, I believe... Paul, in his analogy here, is saying that Christ is the melody. I'm coming from the Bible here. He says it in verse 5. He says, live in harmony. What does he say? In accord with Christ Jesus. This phrase, in accord with Jesus Christ, it, it defines and creates the parameters for the way that we live in harmony with one another. We listen to the life of Christ. We follow the life of Christ. We understand Christ. And we are living according to his life. The purposes of this. The purpose of living lives of harmony, having an ear for the main line, for the melody, for the main singer, 
Jesus Christ. The purpose of this is in verse 6. He says, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one voice, we glorify him. We glorify, that's the purpose, is that together we lift our voices as we bear with one another. Don't you see how this is bringing glory to God? Saying to ourselves, saying to our brother, saying to our sister, and saying to the world that there is one Christ and one cross and one redeemed people of God, and this is my brother, this is my sister, and we are one. And what's the song that the people of God sing? I can almost hear it. Revelation chapter 5, we get a glimpse of it as all of the people of God are pictured at the, at the, the throne there with the bloodied lamb who died for the sins of the world. The people of God sing out together with one voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength, and honor and glory and praise. Church, can we sing that song? Do we know that melody? Are we singing in harmony with one another? There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Christ is the song. He is the hope that we have. Run to Christ. And as we are running together with Christ, giving glory to the Lamb that was slain, we will be singing in harmony. Because Christ is the strong. And we are the weak. Christ bore the failings of the weak. Christ suffered for the failings of the weak. And three days later, Christ rose so that the weak might be made strong so that we might have life. As the old hymn say, says that we sing often, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. No friend like him, so high and holy. No, not one. No, not one. And yet, no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one. No, not one. There's not an hour that he is not near us. No, not one. No, not one. No night so dark, but his love can cheer us. No, not one. No, not one. Was ever a gift like the Savior given? Everybody responds. No, not one. No, not one. Will he refuse us a home in heaven? No, not one. No, not one. And then the chorus goes, Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus, and we pray that we would learn 
what it means to bear with the failings of the weak. God, we thank you for the fact that Jesus, the strong, bore with us. Let us see him. Let us follow him. And let us together harmonize with one voice as we sing out glory to Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.